What's up, everybody? I'm Ronald Young Jr. I'm an audio producer and live storyteller, film critic, and cultural commentator. You may have heard me on the podcast Solvable and NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. And I'm Brittany Luce, a longtime documentary superfan, freelance journalist, and cultural critic. You may know me from my other podcasts, For Colored Nerds and The Nod. And we're popping into the McMillions podcast feed to bring you an episode of a new HBO podcast that we host called HBO Docs Club. Now, let me tell you, Brittany, I loved McMillions, the documentary. I was losing my McMind watching it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that you were, that you were, Ronald. On each episode of HBO Docs Club, we take a closer look at a film or series in the HBO documentary films catalog. We'll get updates on the stories, talk with the filmmakers behind each feature documentary, as well as experts who will help us make sense of what we've seen. This season, we'll be watching stories about unsolved child murders, the inside story of Harlem's legendary theater, and a transgender woman who tried to revolutionize the auto industry. The episode we're bringing you today is about The Invisible Pilot, a three-part docuseries about an Arkansas crop duster named Gary Betzner who ends up colliding with one of the biggest political scandals of our time. You can watch it right now on HBO Max. And be sure to subscribe to HBO Docs Club wherever you get your podcasts so you can know what we're watching next. And now, take a listen to the HBO Docs Club episode on The Invisible Pilot. A great documentary makes us question everything. everything. The things that we know and the things we think we know. But we're actually completely wrong about. This is the beginning of my last act. In order to know how to go forward, I'm going to have to know where I've been. The public figures we love and love to hate. The issues that we must face as a society. Huge cultural moments. I mean, as a Black man, you're born into this world with PTSD. Things you can't unsee. The aftermath is worse than the actual levees breaking. Someone who's different from us, but also... Not that different from us. Somebody offers you a million dollars, you're going to take it. Documentaries show us the worst... And the best of what what human human beings beings are capable of. He would fly over the farmers on the field and drop cold beer to (laughs) Welcome to HBO Docs Club where we dive deep into the true stories that captivate our imaginations. I'm Brittany Luce, longtime documentary super fan, freelance journalist, and cultural critic. You may know me from my other podcasts, For Colored Nerds and The Nod. And I'm Ronald Young Jr., audio producer, live storyteller, film critic, and cultural commentator. You may have heard me on the podcast Solvable and NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. During each episode, we'll take a closer look at a film or series in the HBO Documentary Films catalog. Sometimes they'll be from our recent past. Other times they'll be brand new. But they'll all inevitably teach us something about the human condition. All right. In this episode, we discuss the three-part series The Invisible Pilot from directors Phil Lott and Ari Mark. This twist-filled docuseries focuses on an Arkansas crop duster named Gary Betzner. The series takes us on a truly wild ride, truly wild, as it reveals how Betzner's stranger-than-fiction life ends up colliding with one of the biggest political scandals of our time. When you commit suicide, you, you aren't planning on coming back. But I did come back. I became the biggest, baddest drug smuggler of all time. Later in this episode, we sit down with one of the directors of The Invisible Pilot, Phil Lott, and executive producer, Todd Schulman. And we talk with journalist and podcast host, Leon Nafok, who helps us better understand Gary's connection to the Iran-Contra affair and its impact on our current politics. What Iran-Contra shows is there's no world stage. It's just a bunch of guys in a room. And it's, it's whichever guys happen to be in power. And before we get too far into things, consider this your spoiler warning, okay? So if you don't do spoilers, please stop this episode and come back after you've watched today's documentary. And I have to stress, today is a very important day for you to have watched the documentary first. So please, please, please stop. Come back after you've watched. Oh, yes. You have been warned.
So to kick things off, let's recap some of the major events of the documentary. The Invisible Pilot reveals the untold story of how Gary Betzner, a small-town hero and father of three, one day suddenly fakes his death. Then he changes his name six times, gets recruited by the CIA to run illegal weapons to a Central American war, and then becomes an unlikely key witness against President Reagan in the Iran-Contra scandal. So Gary's story is told in three distinct chapters in this documentary. And the series begins as Gary's family and his small community in Arkansas are basically struggling to find answers as to why Gary, who's like this supposed family man, suddenly dies by suicide out of the blue. It was dark. My mom came in and kneeled down and took us, sat us and we looked at us seriously. She just said, I gotta tell y'all something. And gave him a big hug and cried and said something horrible has happened and your dad's gone. I didn't know he jumped. I mean, I didn't. I didn't know he jumped off the bed. I just know he was dead. She said he was dead. I just didn't get it. Then in the second episode, we're still basically reeling from the revelation that Gary is actually alive. And we learned how Gary's idyllic life had secretly become this caper-filled hidden life of drug smuggling, alternate personalities, Pablo Escobar, and also an illegal war that he starts to believe is being conducted at the highest levels of the U.S. government. As Gary wrestles with becoming a CIA pawn in the final episode, he makes the life-changing and very risky decision to blow the whistle on the entire operation and President Reagan— and becomes the star witness in John Kerry's Senate hearings into the CIA's connection with the illegal drug trade. And this is televised across the world. Now, Mr. Betzner, did George Morales call you? Uh, yes, he did. He uh, wanted me to fly some uh, guns and uh, ammunition, stuff like that, uh, down to the Contras. Then what was uh, loaded into that flight? Uh, that particular flight had an M60 machine gun, um, other M16 guns, uh, there was some C4 explosive. You took those By the third episode, the series presents the stories of both men, both hiding secrets, both breaking the law, on a collision course with history. One of them, of course, we know, that's Gary, a small-town father with dreams of something bigger. And the other is President Ronald Reagan. A charge has been made that the United States has shipped weapons to Iran as ransom payment for the release of American hostages in Lebanon. That the United States undercut its allies and secretly violated American policy against trafficking with terrorists. Those charges are utterly false. And in the end, both men push, little by little, the boundaries of what they are prepared to do, finally stepping over the line beyond the point of no return. And today, at age 82, well, not literally today, but in present day, at age 82, Gary retells his story as he reconciles with the meaningful repercussions of his life and reflects on his legacy. So, Brittany, what is your overall impression? What did you think? I will say the documentary was very helpful in me understanding functionally how the Iran-Contra scandal worked. You see on, to me, a micro and a macro level, the depth of American greed and deceit and just how baked into the foundation of our country, but also our American values, that level of deceit and scamming are. You obviously see on a macro level, President Reagan and the Reagan administration scamming the United States this is like before we even get into the AIDS epidemic. This is before we even get into Reaganomics. Mm -hmm. But on a micro level, we see Gary try to carry out the same scams. And he gets pretty far. When all yeah. is said and done, when you consider the grand scheme of all of the crimes that Gary has committed throughout his life, we see not that much recompense for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's not a particularly, I guess, reflective individual in that way. And, you know, he does obviously end up serving jail time. But at the end of the day, like, he's he's out. But he also had a lot of really fun times that are outlined with him using drugs and having a good time and everything like that, expecting his wife and children to accept him and deal with that. What's interesting to me is that I don't know if he ever really fully feels the brunt of all of the wrong that he's committed over the years. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the way that his wives, the women in his life, and 
his children, when you look at the way that they feel about him and you look at the way that their lives have been touched by his deceit and by his criminality, it becomes a lot more clear just the toll it takes, that level of deceit and that level of just ruthlessness and just pursuing a life of just pure pleasure and fun for yourself as Gary has. I watched this series twice. And the first time through, I found myself just really struck by how this man seemed so proud of himself. But in the first 30 minutes, we don't realize that this man is not dead. You know, so we're we're sold a bill of goods that Gary Betzner is a dead man. And mm. when he then shows up, he shows up even when he, <laughs> the way the the uh, the way the directors have him show up, he shows up in such a way that makes me say, oh, man, you. So what are you up to? What, what are you up to? No good. And I feel like he continues that he does not disappoint for the rest of the documentary series. Like mm-hmm. he talks about uh, getting he talks about getting arrested uh, in Hawaii, I believe it was uh, when when he had absconded and sent for his family and they were living as nudists in Hawaii. Oh my gosh. At six o'clock one morning, I heard the door knocked. I looked out and saw the cops. We had a sign on our property. It's like, take off your clothes and come in because we were nudists. They came in and they said, come down, come down. So I just said, okay, came down those stairs, naked as a table. When he's out there, they get arrested, and he talks about one of the police officers having the drugs that they confiscated from him in his hand, and how he just took the acid that it was and just popped them in his mouth, all three of them. And he would just he starts laughing when he tells this story. And I remember looking and saying, "What are I? What is, is this man out of his mind?" They took us to town. They booked us and fingerprinted us. The cop walked. They said, "What's this right here?" Yeah, these guys didn't just fall off a turnip truck. They knew about acid. I just reached over and picked one of them up, picked that other one up, put the other one up. I got him right out of his hand, put them all three in my mouth like that. He said, he looked at me, he knew what I'd done, you know, he said, whoa. <laughs> like, what, how are you just so reckless with everything that you're doing? But you, you talk about this, he's a drug runner, he's has six identities, he's married five women, he has several children by different women, and he's such rampant irresponsibility for this man to be embroiled in this scandal, for him to be a key witness in this scandal, the Iran-Contra affair, there's something about it that the second time watching through, I'm just like, I I just don't understand how you stumbled into this. Like, of of all the criminals and all the drug runners in the world, how was it that Gary Betzner was the one that stumbled into this? It almost feels like it was perfectly made for him to be the witness and to have this documentary story later. But you're right, when you get to the end, when you start listening to the reflections of Sally, his first wife, and Polly, one of his daughters, when you listen to them and you start to consider the impact, it really brings me back to the very beginning of the documentary where I'm just like, I don't like how smug he is about this. But towards the end, when you see that he still seems smug, the cost is only kind of sold to us by, you're right, by the women in his life who were like, hey, this did a number on me and I did not like it. I mean, I was six. What I thought is, well, why did he want to stay around for me? Like, what was wrong with me? Why did he want to kill himself? Did I do something wrong? Was I not pretty enough? Was I not good enough? Was I not smart enough? Like, what was wrong with me? It put a hole in my heart of like, who am I? Like, was I not worth anything? You know, I just wanted like my dad. I think you nailed it when you talked about him living his life uh, as if there were no consequences. Uh, And more so for me, I'm saying like no stakes. There were no stakes in all of this because the one time you see him decide, oh, I got to stop doing this is when he sees what the stakes are. Never mind all of the people who he's affected at this point, including your wife and children, your wives and children's. Those words. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) 
nothing, <laughs> nothing at all. Gary's just out there living his life. As a matter of fact, the one time that we see Gary get fired up is towards the end when yes. he starts talking about the government. He's like, what? You guys are going to, when he finally gets arrested, he finally gets what's coming mm-hmm. to him, even though he's supposed to be undercover for the CIA at some point or continuing to run guns and drugs uh, for the CIA. When he's when he's doing that, at the end, when he ends up in prison, he's like, oh, no, this uh, this this shall not stand. Because the scammer got scammed. Yes. The scammer got scammed. Yes. The scammer got scammed. Yes. And what do you that expect? That is when we see him come alive. And I get a chance to, you know, do something to you, I'm going to do it. I don't care. What are you going to do to me? You've already done all you can to me. I mean, look where I am. What are you going to do? Kill me? Go ahead. You want to give me life? Go ahead. We, we talked a lot about how Gary evades responsibility in his life. But there's one point at which he says something that is really illuminating to me in the documentary. He says, I faked my suicide to avoid consequences. What's the difference? This is him talking about his actions, right? To escape a drug charge, to leave his children and the mothers of his children mourning, okay, over his death, thinking that he died by suicide. He's comparing that to the fallout and all of the hoopla over the Iran-Contra scandal. He's like, what's yes. the difference is how he puts that. Colonel North, isn't it true that you shredded them? I, I believe I did. Oliver North, he shredded documents to protect other people and avoid consequences. I understand that perfectly. I uh, faked my suicide to avoid consequences. What's the difference? That tells you a couple things about where Gary's mind is at as far as scale. There's a difference between the acts of one person and the acts of a system of governance. The fact that Gary thinks that he has not wreaked just as much havoc on the people closest to him as he feels the government has has wreaked upon everybody else is so wildly telling when he says that. He's like, okay, so I fake my own death. What's the big deal? The government does messed up things every day. And it's like, yeah, but the government is not actually personally responsible for your five wives and all their kids. That does fall a little bit more squarely on you in the day-to-day sense. And you did mess that up. You know how we all think, we all believe we're the star of our own, of the movie. We're all the main character. I'm the star. Yeah, we're all the main character. You guys are all the side characters, whatever. But I think at some point we, you know, those of us that are reflective, that have any sense of community, any of that, realize that I might be the side character in this episode. (laughs) You know, like you, you, you do. And the more you do that, the more empathetic I think a person you are. Like, I just need to be a side character to this person to support their (laughs) journey or whatever. Gary never feels that. And I think, you know, evidenced by the fact that he tried to break out of federal prison uh, with a helicopter, which is just, I mean, wild. Wild is the, is the, is the adjective I just keep using over and over again. Tries to do that. But then also, when you get to the point that this man now says that in the hero of his own movie, he's going to look at it and say, yeah, I'm going to stand up to the government and I'm going to win. Why can't I beat the government? This is the next level up in whatever this game is that I'm playing. You exactly. Know? So- exactly. I'm glad that you mentioned that it's a game because the thing is, is that Gary was always the boss, the big boss and the winner of most of the games that he was yes. playing throughout his life. Once the federal government got him, I think he failed to see that he was a player yes. or a pawn really, in that larger game. I I, I think you're right. And I think uh, him thinking that all of this was put upon him just feels like that. there's more of that lack of reflection. Uh, Let me ask you this. Does does Gary's story feel uniquely American to you? Because the one thing I think about over and over again is the sense of entitlement. So tell me what you think. Absolutely. His story definitely feels uniquely American to me. There is a sense of entitlement. There is this manifest destiny. When you think about like the values that are baked into our country, it's looting and it's scamming and it's deceit and taking things that already belong to other people (laughs) or don't need to be taken to begin with and claiming them as your own. And then claiming that you're being put upon when it comes time for you to take responsibility for anything. Gary is 82 years old. You know what I mean? I can see how someone like Gary came to believe that he kind of has ownership over, you know, his corner of the world. Yeah. They put me back in prison. What we did, 
and the people we did it for. We should have gotten some kind of consideration, you know, to get out of jail. Nothing like that ever happened. You know, no one ever came forward and said, shit. We see the ways that Gary's actions have affected his family, but I still feel like there's this open-endedness to the end of the documentary as far as what happened to the people in Nicaragua. What happened to the legacy of Ronald Reagan? Yeah. Is that something that people are actively reconsidering right yeah. now? Maybe a few, but it doesn't seem like it's dominating a national conversation. I don't know. I, I just wish that there was a little bit more that would lay out the reverberations of the United States government's actions. And, and you know, we like in the documentary, Gary's daughter says that he's getting his karma. Yeah. And I just was able to just tell him, like, I love you. I'll always love you. So if you want to be nice and you want to apologize for all the things you've done to myself, to my mother, throughout my life and be honest, then we can have a real relationship. And if he had that in his heart, then he could have, like, maybe have a house that he likes and a happy life at the end of his life. But he's actually getting his karma. I feel like the one thing that I will say is that it, it feels like it's intentionally left open-ended and a little amorphous because it's kind of like just where we are right now. As we sit here in 2022, we really don't know what the future of politics looks like. And I think, <laughs> you know, at the time, this documentary ends kind of like where we are in this mindset. So there's no happy ending that says like, you know, you watch a Goodfellas movie or you watch something, there's words on the screen that so-and-so was arrested and sentenced to three years. and all. There's none of that except for Gary. Uh, and except for the fact mm. that he did spend, he says, about 22 years, first drug smuggling, and then 12 years in prison. So he spends a good chunk of his life, you know, evading capture, living wild, all of that. And it really is the only through line they have of this story to say like, hey, man, this man ended up being a key witness in this other thing that we can't really talk about the cost of, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Coming out of that conversation with Ronald, I still had a lot of questions about Iran-Contra. So I called my friend Leon Nafak, who's done extensive research on the Iran-Contra scandal and who also appears in The Invisible Pilot. Leon, welcome to HBO Docs Club. I am so glad to have you. Hi, Brittany. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm excited to talk with you today about Iran-Contra. It's a gnarly scandal. I know it's a big story. But could you explain in the simplest terms what the story is for somebody who might not otherwise be familiar? Absolutely. Um, it's a it's it's a dog of a scandal. It's like it, it has so many tentacles. I guess dogs don't have tentacles, but imagine a dog with tentacles. <laughs> so, all right, I'm going to do my best. Basically, it starts with this problem that the Reagan administration had, which was that there were a bunch of Americans kidnapped uh, in Lebanon and they were held hostage. Reagan had partially gotten elected because he was so harsh on Jimmy Carter when he had his own hostage crisis. And so when Reagan got a hostage crisis of his own, it was really kind of huge political liability for him. And also he was just like very invested in getting these hostages home. And it turned out that there was potentially a way to bring them back if the United States would be willing to sell weapons to Iran. Iran had just gone through a revolution, and there were supposedly, according to Reagan administration sources, people in Iran who could help uh, secure the release of these hostages in Lebanon because they had some sway over the over the group that was holding them. And so that led to this idea of selling them weapons, missiles that Iran needed for the war with Iraq. I'm telling you, like every time I start a sentence, I can it can end up in like three different three different places with three different proper nouns. So but I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. All right, good. So, so basically this plan was hatched that the U.S. would sell a large amount of missiles to Iran. Uh, and the hope was that in doing so, they would win favor with these people in Iran who had influence over the kidnappers and then the hostages would be freed. So that's one part. That's the Iran part. Um, I think of, I think of Iran-Contra as like a three-part thing, right? There's the Iran part, there's the Contra part, and then there's the hyphen that connects them. So I just told you the, I just told you the Iran part. The Contra part involves a war in Nicaragua where socialists had taken over uh, in a revolution and this 
resurgent force of right-wing fighters was trying to win back control of the country. You know, anti-communist, like extremely in line in a way with like Reagan's posture in the Cold War. Those are the Contras, yeah. And they're fighting the Sandinistas. Exactly. So there was, a, there was this war happening in Nicaragua between the, the Contras and the Sandinistas. And the Reagan administration really wanted to help the Contras. And that meant, you know, sending them weapons. It meant training them. It meant sending them food. The problem was that Congress basically stepped in. And because there was so much opposition to having another entanglement in, in a far off land like, like we had with Vietnam, Congress said, you know, we don't want the U.S. to be down there. We don't want the country to be pulled into yet another one of these proxy battles in, in as part of the Cold War. And so there was a law passed that said no money can be spent on supporting the Contras. Um, I'm simplifying a little bit. There were like multiple laws. They all said slightly different things, but that was the bottom line. And so the Reagan administration like had their hands tied until they realized that they could support the Contras secretly. And so that was what led to the covert war, essentially, where the U.S. was supplying all these weapons and, and, again, food and whatever else the Contras needed and training so that Reagan's, you know, beloved Contras, whom he compared to, like, the founding fathers in public speeches, would have a chance at defeating the Sandinistas. So, so that's the Contra part. And the question now is, how do they go together? These two, like, totally separate uh, foreign <laughs> policy situations. Yeah. And the answer lies with that hyphen. And the hyphen essentially refers to money. It's that the money that was raised by selling weapons to Iran secretly could be spent on fighting this war the U.S. was not supposed to be fighting. So it's the way kind I think of like it, a money laundering operation that allows you to also cover up the fact that you're funding a proxy war? Kind of, yeah. I don't know if like money laundering is exactly right, but like I think I say this in the documentary, but it's like it's like they were using money they weren't supposed to have because they weren't supposed to be selling weapons to Iran, which was like our number one enemy, you know, and in public, Reagan was like always raging against Iran. So they had, they had all this money that they weren't supposed to have. And then they had this thing that they wanted to spend money on that they weren't supposed to spend money on. So it was kind of convenient. They had like invisible money that they could spend on an invisible war. Why do you think that this story isn't one that sort of taught in school or something that we would learn about in a more common fashion, like, you know, through high school history education or something like that? I mean, honestly, like, I think that the fact that it's so kind of convoluted makes it kind of a tall order for teachers to, like, to teach. I mean, honestly, when you compare it to Watergate, it's kind of just, it's it's just a, it's just a kind of a handful. And it also involves a lot of foreign countries, right? Like, all these faraway places, you always hear this, like, it's just, it's in Hollywood, you know, it's hard to, to sell stories about other parts of the world, Americans just like aren't quite as ready to like get invested in whatever, you know, in the 1979 Iranian revolution or the Sandinista, you know, Contra war. That makes it tough too. But, you know, I feel like you're getting at something else and I don't want to sort of sidestep it, which is that like they did a really good job of kind of closing the book on it. The Reagan administration, but also the Bush administration that followed, you know, George H.W. Bush was Reagan's vice president. Mm. He was able to to pardon many of the people who had received consequences for this, for their role, for their role in this, and I think even though you kind of, hmm. it's it sort of strains the imagination that like merely pardoning someone kind of like erases what they did. Obviously, it doesn't. So like, it doesn't totally explain why the scandal kind of faded into obscurity. But I think between like between its resolution, where like there wasn't a satisfying kind of smoking gun pointing towards Reagan, or does the smoking gun point towards Reagan or is he holding the smoking gun? I guess he would be holding it. Uh, they couldn't find the smoke. They couldn't put a smoking gun in Reagan's hand. And I think that just like sapped it of some momentum that would have been needed for it to like have more of an afterlife in like cultural memory. I think that's why there's an All the President's Men about Watergate and no such thing about Iran-Contra. So I wonder, from your view, what do the events of Iran-Contra teach us about America then... And now, like, what's changed? What's stayed the same? The best I've got, I think, is that Iran-Contra really demonstrated that even though we think of, like, foreign policy as this, like, very mm -hmm. elevated and, like, potentially, like, theoretical thing where, like, you're thinking about, like, 
power dynamics between countries and you're imagining these like very formal alliances between nations. But like what Iran-Contra shows is there's no world stage. It's just a bunch of guys in a room and it's it's whichever guys happen to be in power. And, you know, in this case, like you had people in power in the United States who were obsessed with communism and who thought it was like the biggest threat to national security ever that there might be like a small socialist government taking root uh, in South America or in in Central America, rather, you know, there were reasons why they were scared. They thought that the Soviet Union was like going to use, you know, use that socialist government to like establish a communist beachhead and, you know, in the West. (laughs) Anyway, like the the people who were who were in the White House, including Oliver North and including John Poindexter and Bud McFarlane and Ronald Reagan, they were really invested in this proxy war. And and in the same way, Reagan particularly was really invested in getting these hostages home. And so they just did it. The idea that like that this arms for hostages trade was brokered by this like basically this like rando who worked at a, in a low level staff job in the White House and this other rando who like claimed to know influential people in Iran. I was just kind of shocked. I was just like, I didn't think this this is how foreign policy was was carried out. But it seems to, to be the case. And to kind of maybe drift closer to like the subject of the invisible pilot, like the fact that Basically, the U.S. was waging a war, a secret war, using like private contractors. Lord knows who they were reporting to and where the money was coming from that was paying them and what else they were doing on the side. It's just like it to me, it was like bewildering. I just didn't really I just didn't think that that's how foreign policy worked. And I think it probably does like way more often than we think. I mean, what you're saying is true. And I suppose I would like I knew I understand that it's true and it makes total sense. But it's also you saying it that way feels scarier than I anticipated. <laughs> it is. It is a little scary. I mean, I mean, it was so clear with the Trump administration, right? I mean, so much of what the nation uh, did on the world stage uh, under the Trump White House was like the result of his whims, his delusions, and his like obsessions. You kind of imagine that foreign policy is this like again, this like heightened realm where the whims of individual men are like not as not as determinative, but I think they totally are. Well, Leon. Thank you so much. I know you've been deep in this stuff for a long time, so I appreciate you (laughs) breaking off a chunk of your knowledge and sharing it with us. So happy to talk to you, Brittany. Thank you for having me on. Okay, now let's get into the story of The Invisible Pilot with co-director Phil Lott and executive producer Todd Shulman. Phil, we're going to start with you. Tell us how you first learned of the story of Gary Betzner and his involvement with the Iran-Contra scandal. Yeah, I work with Ari Mark, my directing partner, and we own a company called Ample. We're both super fans of 70s paranoia movies. We decided we want to find something that had a mix of, you know, some dark political scandals, some 70s, 80s nostalgia. And I, you know, ideally tell it through the lens of someone very unexpected at the center. We were looking at this list and then suddenly we remembered that you know, about 11 years ago, we'd met this met this guy at a film festival. And it was like the Sonoma Film Festival. And we met this guy and he had this crazy story uh, about Gary Betzner, this guy, his friend. And I think one of his friends had started filming some interviews already. And we couldn't really remember it all, but we remembered that it had Reagan and drug connections. And it was this crazy, wild ride, you know, a story that frankly, we we're both still thinking about 11 years later. So we called, called him up out of the blue just to see where it was and he's a writer called John Crawford and he's a producer on the show and we asked him you know if that film had ever gone anywhere and he said it's strange that my friend still his name's Craig Hodges he still has been filming he's been working at 10 years and he just hasn't cracked it yet and I think he was just sort of stuck in its this story's web we, we caught we met with Craig and we sort of said look show us some footage let's see what you got and I think coming to it clean and he had bits and pieces of the story, but I think coming into it clean, Ari and I just could cut through all the threads and we, we could see that this is the story we wanted to tell. I mean, this guy has, he'd had 10 years of, of this footage on this hard drive and just couldn't see a way, a pathway through it. And, and we just could, we just saw it from day one. We're like, we get it. We understand what this is. This is, you know, absolutely what we've been looking for. It's like a one in a million story. It's a small town guy connected with one of the biggest political scandals of the 20th century. And it has to be told. Todd, as executive producer on the project, at what point did you get involved and what made you want to get involved? So we had just finished this 
six-part series for HBO, Q Into the Storm, kind of tracing the origins and people behind QAnon. And Adam McKay, who I work with and is also an executive producer on the project, and I had talked about what a great experience that was and how much we had enjoyed it. And we kind of made it known we were definitely interested in doing more in the documentary space. Um, and we'd sent a few things and none of them we had quite connected with. And then our agent sent us over this sizzle that Phil and Ari had made for the Invisible Pilot. And I just remember queuing it up and starting to watch it. And like three minutes in, I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. That's an unusual twist. And then like two minutes later, there was another twist. And I was like, what? Um, and by the end of the 10 minutes, I was like, how is this possible? I remember I said, I want to talk to these guys. And my very first question to them was like, is this all true? Because it just felt like it was such an incredible story that actually lived up to the truth is stranger than fiction kind of cliche. We're always looking for kind of ways to tell stories we think are really important. Uh, in this case, touches on Iran-Contra. But it's, it's a hard one to kind of crack in terms of making people go, oh, I want to watch that Iran-Contra documentary. So this film was full of interviews with Gary and his family over decades and reminded me a lot of like uh, Richard Linklater's Boyhood. How were you guys able to interview the characters multiple times, multiple years apart? Um, you know, I think it's the gift, you know, the gift of uh, Craig Hodges filming for 10 years. He's the local Arkansas family friend who, who grew up with Travis, the son of Gary Betzner. And so I guess he's been sort of immersed in the story for all this period of time. So he, he was just filming again and again and again. And frankly, I think the part of the reason that he went back and filmed them over and over again was to test the story, to see if, to see if they told the same story again. So that's an interesting approach that is, you know, comes with the luxury of having 10 years. But, you know, I think when Ari and I came to it, we had the opportunity to kind of just re-interview everybody, which we did. And in tandem with a you know incredible edit team, we came up with this sort of flutter of effects or something. This, this this idea of being able to see these characters age, especially with Sally, one of Gary's ex-wives, I mean, who I think is an emotional anchor. But as she ages, she also has more perspective. And I think you know to be able to tap into that, especially the most recent interviews that R and I did, you know, she really ties the film together in a way that helps you understand the cost as a resource it's it's fa frankly fascinating because you've got a lot of interviews available to look at but i also think it's just purely as a piece of filmmaking i think to to be able to play with that and the nature of time passing the nature of you know you, you physically see them age we like to have those touch points in the story where they repeat the same action you know that moment when gary jumps off the bridge and you have that hand clap from sally you know, to have that repeated over 10 years. It's interesting because the, the turns of phrase, they kind of don't change <laughs> over 10 years, but the details leading up to it and, uh, and following it, they do change. And I don't mean factually, I mean in terms of their perspective. To, to Phil's point also, I think Craig deserves a tremendous amount of credit because the persistence that's required to keep going back to these people, he knew there was a great story here that deserved to be told. And without that kind of initial uh, instinct, uh, this project doesn't exist. All of this stuff pertains to Gary. All these files, all these boxes and boxes of stuff. I mean, years and years and years. Why did he do it? I come back and kept asking questions. One person would say one thing, one person would say another thing. There's a lot of truth in fiction. I learned that most certainly but there's a lot of fiction and truth. All the footage, all the archives. Right over there, a little, my life savings is in a box right over there, about this big, a hard drive. Is the answer on that hard drive somewhere? Is the truth on there? Fuck, I don't know. Phil, another question for you, like, this is, because this story has so many twists and turns, that can be challenging to approach from a story perspective. So, like, how did you and Ari approach the organization of a story with so many different elements, so many different locations, so many different characters. How did you guys approach like thinking about how to put that together? I mean, I think what we try and do, Ari and I always, when we're sort of looking at stories, is we just trying to figure out what's the smallest part 
of the story and what's the biggest part of the story and how can you connect those two. Definitely in the case of Gary Betson's story, you start off with this small town guy and you end up with this massive political scandal and you're you're naturally going to take the audience on a crazy journey because if you're connecting the dots between there and there, you know you're going somewhere, which is always important. You need to have a destination, but you've also led the audience on a journey from something that is very recognizable and, and relatable, you know, a small town family man who, you know, one day pulls his car over on the way back from from getting ice cream and jumps off a bridge. I mean, that's something that you read in the newspaper. It's 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 shocking and terrifying, but it, it happens in, in, in a world that we all recognize. Well, then how the hell do you connect that with a showdown with the president of the United States? I mean, it doesn't get any bigger than that. And I think once we once we once we had the organizing principle of sort of a small town thriller mystery in episode one, uh, this sort of crazy energy of episode two, back to the sort of seventies conspiracy thriller in episode three, I think that really gave, gave us some guidance about where to drop all those weird facts and little pieces of information about the Gary that come out. I do have a question about when we're leaning into the twists and the turns. I remember one thing watching the first 30 minutes and realizing that uh, after realizing that Gary's not dead, that Gary is very much alive. I, I remember thinking I've never seen something like that in a documentary where the you guys, the storytellers, are also taking part of, aha, like there's something else happening here. Can you tell me a little bit about that decision to hold that piece of information back? You kind of want to take the audience on the experience that that everyone in Gary's world had, which is, you know, for these, for this family, for these kids, you know, they lost their dad. You know, for for several months, he was a dead person to them. I mean, as filmmakers, you always want to be unexpected. And if we can have had, if we were playing with the genre that this was a a small town murder mystery, with this sort of massive twist at the beginning, it starts right out the gate with a guy jumping off a bridge. Well, then you know, you kind of don't want to have him alive. You, you kind of want to. Keep him dead for as long as you possibly can. And that conversation, and Todd, jump in because I remember this is a conversation we had. It was like, where in episode one do you do that? How how far can you stretch it? Too far, and you've just over teased too early, and you kind of lose the power of it, the impact of it. I was just say, just to get into like the nuts and bolts of it, like I remember trying to push you guys, which was wrong, to be like, can can we can we hold back on that reveal to the end of the first episode? And the problem with that is like Gary is obviously such a compelling character and so central to the story we're telling. It's it's hard to have that hole for a full hour before you reveal he's alive and get get his kind of presence and point of view in the story. But then I remember seeing the first cut and it was 15 minutes in maybe that Gary was revealed. And it just felt like we didn't have long enough time to miss him. You know, like it was just it was we weren't getting everything we could out of to to Phil's point kind of letting the audience experience what it must have been like for Gary's friends and some of his family to, to think he was dead. And so hopefully we landed on on the right kind of pacing by putting it roughly, I don't know, what, 35 minutes in or so to the first episode. Yeah, it was it was really a perfect amount of time because it definitely had me hooked. Um, it definitely uh, set me up with the expectation to not have any expectations <laughs> for the documentary and just to like allow things. Like I just knew that I was going to consistently um, have my expectations subverted. But of course we find out that Gary is still alive. Not only did Gary survive this supposed like jump into, you know, jump from this bridge, but Gary's still alive today. Uh, what we learn about him is so much stranger and more random than I ever could have expected. And some of his actions and some of the the ripple effects of those actions, it kind of calls into question sort of like who Gary is like morally. I'd love for each of you to answer. Like, would you call Gary a hero, an anti-hero, or neither? Like, what do you think drove him to sort of operate above the law? In the case of Gary... You know, you don't want to paint him as someone who's perfect. You're, you're definitely walking right through his life along with his flaws, you know, in the mistakes and the decisions he made. But I think principally, I think what we really were attracted to was that for the whole time, every single sort of rule-breaking, law-breaking, crazy decision he made personally, he's doing it from a place of a, a real personal mission. But he justifies it by saying, this shouldn't be illegal. He really feels he's not, that drugs shouldn't be illegal. 
Um, so if you have a central character who's owning their sort of their crusade, that happens to also be, you know, morally questionable, definitely illegal, and he's okay with that, then actually you're not kind of hiding anything. It allows you to kind of just just show him as he is. Yeah, I, I would say like you know you've touched upon part of what I think is really compelling about the hopefully about the documentary, which is two different people could watch this and come away with very different perspectives on on Gary. Because I think to, to Phil's point, there is the element of Gary that you could perceive as, you know, someone who's standing up to a law he believes is unjust. And, you know, that's what's motivating him in large part. But then there's also the part of Gary, I think, that you can see where he's a man who's just chasing pleasure at any cost. And that's a really fun character to have at the center of a documentary. It may be less fun if it's your dad or your husband. But I think both sides of Gary hopefully are presented in this documentary. You know, I, I do think he, you know, genuinely believes our war on drugs was ill-conceived and unfair. But I also don't know if that's the singular reason why he behaved the way he did over the last 30 years, you know? I, I think Gary had some points about the war on drugs. He had some points as far as, like, the fact that these laws shouldn't exist. But yeah, it's hard to, like, again, think of him as somebody who was, all the actions that he was taking were motivated by his desire to create a different world for people beyond himself. And that's sort of like where I kind of struggle with Gary. No, I think that's very fair. Frankly, I think it's sort of the right line to be on, I think. There's this piece of Gary that he he doesn't take responsibility for a lot of the things he does, ultimately. I mean, uh, for the fallout. I mean, he doesn't see necessarily his connection with some of the fallouts around him in his, in his personal life. But I think there is a little, and I'm, I'm hoping it's subtle, it, should, it wasn't intended to be hitting the audience over the head but i think there is a parallel story running you know through this this whole tale of power uh and you see it in reagan you see it with the the hubris that you know allows the situation where they you know the iran contra can happen the checks and balances aren't there the guardrails are off and you know this there's four or five people at the top of government who allow that to happen but gary you know in end of episode one he talks about this in the interview when we were filming him he was getting very emotional and we, both Ari and I looked at each other, we kind of felt it was because we were getting to something, something in his heart that was probably going to be about missing his family or, you know, the idea of losing his old life. And it ends up being, no, he's feeling this rush of power. He's never felt more powerful. It's somewhat very narcissistic and very selfish. And at the same time, for his life, for what it was, you know, it's very freeing. And similarly, by the time we get to episode three, we see that sort of mirrored in this... You know, series of events that allows a president to be at the heart of a massive scandal. Yeah, I would just yeah add to that. That is once again like part of the kind of like almost fractal element of this series. Hopefully, is the idea that Gary can be perceived as on some level via Iran Contra and the war on drugs. Like he's the guy at the bottom of the chain who ends up doing you know two decades or in, in prison, while a, lo a lot of people above him kind of walk away free. But then conversely, once again, you see Gary's family and he's the guy who got to travel around the world and have these crazy adventures for a decade. And his family was left to kind of deal with the the repercussions and the blowback of, of that for him. So Gary's on, you know, both the victim in some ways and also the, the perpetrator in this story. A theme I, th I think I see coming up over and over again in this conversation is kind of the uh, adage that truth is stranger than fiction. Um, but to that end, Todd, what do you think a documentary can accomplish that a fictional adaptation of a true story can't? That's a, wow, that's a, that's a big question. I don't know if I'd say there, there are things it can accomplish, and this is just my opinion, that, that a fictional version can't, but I think there are certain things it can do better. There's something about the specificity of real human behavior and real people that even the finest filmmaking is it's just so hard to replicate you know uh sally or travis or obviously gary like absolutely there are actors who could try and recapture what makes them distinct and unique but to see you know the look on travis's face as he talks about his father like that's that that only exists on in a real person who's lived through those experiences 
I, I want to play a clip from the doc and have you both respond on the other side. Some people, things that happen in their life, and they'll stick around and face the music. Me, I'm not that way. Uh, if I see that's about to happen, I'm not going to stick around and face the damn music. I'll do what any good American would do. I'm going to run. What do you think your docu-series says about America and the larger American story? Well, I, I, I think part of it's really interesting that that's Gary's perspective on like what a good American does. And I think maybe that's a result of, once again, what Gary's been through, what he's seen when, you know, the, the powers that be are confronted with their actions. You know, that's what they do. They don't take responsibility. They run from it. That's his, that's his attitude towards every tough decision in his life. Is you know rip off rip off the the passport page and print a new one. But look to be more explicit, like you know it's it's kind of touched upon very quickly in imagery at the end of the documentary. But you know, Rand Contra was a wake up call to a lot of people that at the highest levels of government you can do things, and there's no one left to to hold you accountable. Yeah, and, and to Todd's point, you know, I think we we're not we're not hiding the fact that a lot of the people that a part of this story are still around today. We were very, very careful not to make it so nostalgic. It felt like other, like in the past, you know, there's definitely, and, and you know, if you look back at Watergate, back to my seventies conspiracy thriller uh, trip, you know, a lot of the people that were involved in Watergate were still around during around Contra. And so if you're talking about a skill set, <laughs> they're getting better and better. Well, it was definitely a journey. And uh, thank you so much for talking with us about it. Well, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. After talking to Phil and Todd, I think the one thing that struck me is that it was as wild for them to uncover everything they uncovered about Gary Betzner as it was for me to watch it. Listening to them interact with this disinformation as they're actually crafting the story and listening to the way they're telling it, it's basically like, I know, right? While I'm watching and saying, I know, right? Uh, so I think that I, I really appreciated talking to them and listening to how they're uncovering bit by bit and being as impressed with the information that they're giving as I am with receiving it. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see how people receive Gary and see him within this larger system, but then also see how his actions sort of affected this smaller but fairly large ecosystem of, of his family. Well, that's our show for today. Join us next time when we unpack the viral true crime tale, Mommy Dead and Dearest, directed by Aaron Lee Carr. HBO Docs Club is a production of HBO and Pineapple Street Studios. It's hosted by me, Ronald Young Jr. And me, Brittany Luce. Beyondria July is our lead producer, and our associate producer is Maria Robin Somerville. Darby Maloney is our senior editor. Hannes Brown is our engineer and composer. John Asante is our senior managing producer. And our executive producers are Barry Finkel, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. This episode contains audio from the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. I think every family has like the stories we tell over and over again, you know, about the, you know, when someone broke their arm on Christmas or whatever. And for this family, it just happens to be like the time daddy faked his death to avoid an indictment on drug charges and became like an international drug runner.